Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today for our fourth module of the SDA Adolescent Webinar Series. Today I would like to introduce our presenters. We have Ben Peacock, Kerry Leach and Lauren Jones presenting today. I'll just give a quick intro on all of them uh, and then we can get started. So Ben is the founder of Australia's leading sustainability impact and purpose specialist, the Republic of Everyone. For over a decade, Ben has been proving that the dark arts of marketing can change the world for the good. Driven by a belief that sustainability needs a special kind of creativity, he's made it his life's work to bring the two together through strategy, ideas, and a little bit of adventurous spirit. If he's not online, you'll find him surfing. Ben will be followed up today by Lauren and Kerry. Kerry Leach is an accredited practicing dietitian and advanced sports dietitian. I'm sure everyone knows Kerry. She has a long involvement in working with high performance sport. Currently the Sports Nutrition Manager for Netball Australia, which is a role that includes working with the Diamonds as Performance Sports Dietitian, but also managing the Sports Nutrition Pathway Program. She's the Sports Dietitian for Queensland Bulls and Men's High Performance Program, including the Pathways Program, and is part of the Performance Team and part of the Performance Health Advisory Board for the Queensland Academy of Sport. She's been a partner in Eat Smart Nutrition Consultants, which is a Brisbane and Gold Coast based private practice, private practice with a specialty in sports nutrition. She's worked with many athletes from their time as adolescents through to the elite end of their career. And she enjoys all things related to food and hopes to add growing her own fruits and veggies to her repertoire while maintaining an active and uninjured lifestyle. Lauren James is an accredited practicing dietitian and advanced sports dietitian with more than 18 years experience working in clinical private practice and in numerous sporting environments. Lauren is one of the directors of Eat Smart Nutrition, a clinical paediatric and sports nutrition focused private practice in Brisbane and the Gold Coast, along with Kerry. She's currently working as a sports nutrition lead for Water Polo Australia at the QAS in the Water Polo Program for AFLW for the Brisbane Lions and the consultant performance dietitian for the Queensland Ballet. Lauren consults with many adolescent athletes in a wide range of sports, and she can vouch that selling the sports nutrition message to adolescents can be quite the challenge. So look, we'll hand over now to Ben to get started and see just exactly how we can sell that message to our adolescent athletes. Why, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I will share my screen with you and take you on a little tour of something. Can you all see that? I imagine you can. So thank you. Um, health and nutrition is one of many areas that we... Um, deal in a lot of it's um we call that social or personal sustainability we also deal in I, I guess you can look at um planetary health and community health as well what's good for society what's good for the planet what's good for me and of course this sits in that um what's good for me category um one of the things we note is it doesn't matter which part you're talking about these words behavior change come up over and over and over again um whether people are asking you to be less um, obese, whether they're asking you to do more exercise, have a shorter shower, eat more greens, um, you know, let a more of a plant-based diet you get talked about in various places, ride a bike, whatever it is. It's always about behavior change. And it started to bug us one day, this idea of behavior change, because um, I guess a sort of whenever you're working in this space, whenever you're trying to like um, work to communicate with someone, the first thing you want to do is sit back and put yourself in their shoes. And I always thought, what if somebody ran a behavior change campaign on me and, and, and said, I'm going to change your behavior? I would think, you know what? Like, 
the first response I'm going to have is, is no, you're not, simply because it, it suggests that I'm not in control. And, and I think this is part of the problem. And so we, we identify this idea, this concept of behavior change really does need to, to change unto itself. Hence this idea of um, you can't change my behavior. And it is actually rude to try. You have to find ways to convince me. So, so that's, I guess, our first insight is humility in this space because it's very hard. And this idea that you're going to change someone's behavior probably needs to drop. This idea that you can perhaps work with them to identify how they might like to change theirs is probably a better place to begin. But um, that's not that useful, is it? So luckily, we've got another 29 minutes together. So we went through and we look at this all the time. And um, I guess what we've got is a bunch of... Let's start with what not to do's and then start to build back from that as to what might work. And at the end, we've got a little bit of a framework that I think is easy to remember that we use a lot um, that seems to work and it makes a lot of sense. So, so starting, I think this is the most important thing because everywhere, everyone, especially science-based people we find uh, are constantly talking about um, you know, it's logical, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you do it? And it doesn't make sense because you have all the information and that, why is this person not making the logical choice or the rational choice? And it really comes down to this idea that if you rely on humans to make rational decisions, you're probably going to be waiting quite some time. It would seem that evolution has not quite led us there yet, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I've spent quite a lot of time reading up about this from various points of view. And probably my favorite guy is, um, or my favorite person, the fact is he's a guy, um, is a guy called Dan Arrowhead. And he, he speaks quite broadly on this topic. He has a lot of TED Talks and they're very good. And he comes up with this idea that we're very good at rationalizing our actions so that they're really in line with our selfish needs. And I always think actually the funny version of this is, is you know, when people tell you why they bought a certain car or whatever, they'll always tell you it has great miles per gallon. And they'll always tell you, oh, you know, it was a good deal. And like, they'll give you rational reasons they made that because they want to make you to think that they make smart, thought out decisions. But the truth is they think they look cool in it, isn't it really? You know, I like that because it was cool. And we all know that moment where we made an irrational choice because there was an emotional driver on it. Um, when you burrow into this, uh, another quote from, from my friend Dan is, the moment temptation exists around you is very hard to imagine you'll be able to fight it. And that's true. We are um, people who will take the short-term gratification over the long-term potentially. And funny enough, the further you read into this, the more you realize that this seems like a fault in human behavior. But a lot of what um, is said in literature is that it's actually one of the reasons we've been so successful because we are smart in that we often make choices where it's the bird in the hand versus the bird in the bush principle. Pizza is on the table right now. It's pretty delicious and I want it. I'll take the short-term gratification because of course, anyone who's ever invested money knows that long-term gratification is discounted because you're not really sure if you're gonna get it. So we do that as humans, we constantly make these decisions, which makes it very hard because you're talking the short term versus long term. A great, and great examples of this in everyday behavior that show that you cannot rely on people to be rational, like texting and driving. You know that the consequence of texting and driving, if you're lucky, is about a $400 fine, which is a significant fine. The, the super consequence is you're dead in a car crash. Yet we will continue to come back and do it. And everybody does it and everybody knows, right? It's not like anyone, oh, really? You mean I can't actually look at that and drive a car at the same time? Everyone knows it, but people do it. And that therefore shows you that human behavior can't be thought of. And I just give you good, solid um, reasons and you'll do it. 
Another example, we've all been here, and I imagine your target audience of people you're talking to have been here quite a lot, is you know you've got to get up the next day and do that thing. But that party's pretty good, right? And like, so you're going to keep partying and you're like, I'll just go to the little, I'll go one drink. I'll stay at 11. I'll look midnight. I'll look one o'clock. Next thing you've had the best night of your whole life, right? And tomorrow is an absolute write-off. And we've all done it. And, And as I say before, the reason this comes up is is this idea that what appears to be irrational can actually be rational because it's the human brain essentially going, the various choices that are before me now may not be with me later, i.e. there may never be another party like this. So in a funny way, we do make good decisions for ourselves. It's just we don't necessarily make them based only on um, the idea that I'm going to be an awesome athlete. We're also going to bring another little need states into our thinking. And that's the challenge is you've got conflicting need states. And we're talking about one part of someone's life. And I think that's a great example of that is you start the party because you'll remember that party for the rest of your life. You're not going to remember that good night's sleep. Um, Another good example of this and how this makes no sense, which starts to lead us to another reason why people aren't quite rational and thinking. It's not just about the short-term, long-term, I'll take what's in front of me. Look at genes. Fashion is the most interesting, um, the most interesting burrow into human behavior. You go, there was Levo's 501s, right? And boot cut was the coolest thing. And then fast forward 25, 30 years, and it's skinny jeans, right? And everyone's wearing skinny jeans. And like suddenly, like when they first come out, everyone goes, they look ridiculous. And then suddenly you get used to them and everyone's like, no, skinny jeans are good. They make everyone look, you know, neat and tidy and all this sort of thing. Um, And then along comes Gen Z and they say, no, 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 no. Skinny jeans are not cool anymore, millennials. It's all about dad jeans. And now you can rationalize both sides of that argument. You can go back to the skinny jeans and go, no, they're a lot more tapered. Therefore, you look good. So rationally, it's a good decision to look good and look tapered and neat. Or you can go, but that's not as comfortable as that. Like that is really nice and comfortable. So you can rationalize this is more comfortable, but you look like that with the sneakers too on the right. Um, And either of those are rationalizable positions, but there's really no logic behind it. The truth is, and the little bit of information here is what do we do? We do what everyone around us does. And so if you're relying on rational thought, you're um, up against two major, major drivers of human behavior. One is short-term gratification, i.e. I'll take the fun or the delicious pizzas in front of me. It may not be there tomorrow. And you're also up against peer group pressure and social. I want to be like everybody else. And they're two drivers that are probably a lot stronger than rational thought in the human psyche. So um, Nowhere was this, this is Malcolm Gladwell, who's another great, obviously, person who goes through this and does a great job. And he, he, he put this forth, which is a bit of the fashion version as well. The entire principle of a blind taste test was ridiculous, he says. We all know the Pepsi challenge. You know, everyone drinks the Pepsi and the Coke, but they don't know which is which, and everyone prefers Pepsi. He goes, they shouldn't have cared so much that they were losing um, blind taste tests with Lala the Coke. We shouldn't all be surprised that Pepsi's dominance didn't translate into sales, basically, because people don't drink the stuff blind, they drink the can, i.e. they're more attached to the brand in their hand and what they feel that that represents or what it says about them than they are to the actual taste of what they're having. And in essence, that explains the problem with rational thought. Even though you prefer the taste of one, you know it, you still prefer drinking the other one. No rational, but it is kind of rational because it's more about the deeper emotions attached to it. So if we move to a little hint handbook and we'll build this out as we go, you go, number one, if you're relying on rational thought, 
you're probably not going to get there. And of course, science is constantly thinking that people will do that. Economics is built on that too. Keynesian economics, the whole economic system we work within is built on the idea that humans will do the rational thing. And of course, we know they don't. Um, so what else doesn't work? Criticism does not work. So this is an example from a few years back, but it's still a beauty. This, this is um, Disney uh, um, having a crack at trying to take on childhood obesity. And so what do they do is they brought up these superheroes who look really fit and they go out and they created all these villains and all the villains are overweight and they're like the glutton and the this and the that. And you go, okay, that's kind of interesting, right? So the baddies are all the unhealthy ones and the goodies are the healthy ones. This is going to work, isn't it? Absolutely not. Along comes the um, National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. Yes, they exist in the USA and they um, have no doubt got quite a lot of um, people on their side in the US in particular. Um, and they come along there, you are shaming the fat people through doing this. You can't do this, create a huge campaign against them. And lo and behold, Disney's tool of shame, it gets called, has to shut down for stigmatizing fat kids. So by taking on and basically making the fat ones bad ones, big problem, didn't work, shot themselves foot. Though you can see how that looked like a good idea at the time. So hint number two, telling people they are wrong actually makes you wrong. So we can't do that either. What else can't we do? Well, we can't rely on the parents, which is a problem. So here's a study from Cats Council from a few years back where they were looking at, because um, they look at the problem of nutrition and diet because there's a correlation between um, how much you, uh, how, how overweight you are and your chance of getting cancer, basically. And it's a linear um, translation. It's not like you can be a little bit fat and that won't matter. And it's only if you're really fat. It's literally every stage matters kind of thing. So they really want kids. And, and if you're a, an overweight child, you're likely to be an overweight adult. It correlates as well. So they're like, if we can stop this here, we're going to stop cancer there. Um, so, hey, easy, right? We'll just get the parents on board and the kids will eat better. Mm -mm. The study came back and said no. Why? Because that's why. Because the parents are like not doing the right thing to start with. Um, and you look at the problem there is that actually the adults you got a bigger problem with than you do with the parents. Um, when they looked at this, this is bits of the study, they found a few things. Uh, number one, it was a challenge to their lifestyle. It's harder to eat healthy, so parents are like, mm, it's easy to give them a box of shapes when they get home from school, isn't it? Um, they like the food themselves. Back to the previous point, you're making them wrong. Hang on a second. You mean the things I do I shouldn't do? Oh, no, 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 I'm not changing that. It's easy, it's convenient. Um, they like giving kids a treat. Oh, give them, a, give them an ice cream because they did well at school today or whatever. You know, the kid's stoked and your relationship with the kid's really good, right? Because your kid loves that. Um, and they see it as normal. Again, back to that fashion piece. It's normalized. Everyone does it. Therefore, you're asking people to be outside the pack. And that's always a hard thing. And they don't want to rock the boat or challenge the status quo. I don't want to be the weird. I don't want to be weird. I want to be like everyone else. Um, they don't see it as a problem, even if their kids are overweight, they don't think so because the other kids are, right? They're normal. They, of course, put exercise in. Oh, they exercise in a minute. They can eat what they want and they we sort of treat one. Um, so we can't rely on the parents. What's more, um, this is an interesting one. So different studies will show you different things. And this one's particularly about risk-taking, but I think it's another good tell where you find that particularly between those formative ages of 12 and 14, funny enough, um, they're not listening to adults anyway. It's all about that what their peers are saying. So, and you'll see, even though that's the only age group there where the um, 
peers are more important than adult opinion, at every level, the peer opinion is fairly, fairly strong. And this is only around risk taking, as I say. So you start to say, if you're just like rely on adults, parents, you're probably not going to get through to them. And you see another little tell there that perhaps getting in through peer groups um, and the normalization of positive behavior is better than um, the stigmatization of the bad through the adults. Um, so there we go, we start to go hint three, peer groups are probably more important than parents. Um, now, I actually found that study looking at the Malcolm Gladwell stuff on this, if you read his book, um, Tipping Point, he's got a very different point of view, which is actually um, that when you get um, children who are brought up by um, their biological parents, they will just uh, they will show attributes of those parents. When they're um, adopted, they will have almost no correlation with the attributes of the parents, and it's more about the peer group. I.e., the point of view that comes through, and that's the study he references, is actually it's partly uh, nature, hereditary, but the rest of it is nurture via your, your influences. And when you're detached from your biological parent, it's really all about those influences. So. The point of view of that study would say that those top lines on this graph are actually um, a lot weaker than that. So there you go, relying on the parents has multiple problems. Um, what else doesn't work? Just trying to make me change. Um, so this comes more from the political conversation that goes out. It's a very interesting article that really stuck with me from the Herald a few weeks back, and it's about the polarization of the left and the right in um, politics. And it was from a new study that had come out that said, essentially, if somebody is wrong, if you give them a good argument why they're wrong, it actually makes them more sure that they're right. Sounds ridiculous, but true. And we all know confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I seek news that um, um, suggests I'm right. I only read what reinforces my viewpoint. But there's also this backfire effect that you're essentially rocking their world because they've got this belief system that this is the truth and this is right. And you're putting in a piece of information that breaks that. So what they will do is even back to rational thought, even though um, rationally this is correct, they will go, I am rejecting your information because it's easier to reject your truth than it is for me to admit that I'm wrong. And therefore they will double down on ridiculous beliefs. And you're seeing that of course in various political spheres. I'm just gonna believe stuff whether I believe it or not, because if I take it on at that tacit level, I am right and I wanna be right. And then interestingly, it goes through and says, well, you're always going to have a small group that is really, really, really against you um, and you ignore them. But whether they then go and say the best thing you can do is not bother waging arguments with people, not try to change their behaviour, but try to understand their behaviour. So the best thing you can do if you want to, um, if you want to um, get, uh, get someone to meet your point of view is sit and listen to theirs which I think is a pretty nice way of putting it. Because of course, once you understand their point of view, you can understand how they reached it. And then you can start back at those belief systems and go, oh, that's interesting, but what about this? Rather than arguing that the coalface, you can change it back further in the conversation. Um, so hint four, you don't change my behavior, I do, which of course relates to the topic of this talk. Um, and the fifth one, which I think is probably the most important one, is when you, I've spent, ages looking at this stuff, as you can imagine, because the more we can learn about this, the more we can make the world a better place. And the challenge is this, is there's no silver bullet. When you go through and you look um, and you Google this stuff, you will find study after study and half of it conflicts with the other half. 
as I said to you before, I found two studies, one that said the role of parents is almost negligible and the other one said it is still there, but uh, except in one age group, but um, stronger among peers. And which one do you go with? I don't know. And this is the challenge is then what I've found then is this wonderful quote that really is probably the best piece of the whole lot, which says we know nothing about motivation, we just write books about it. And everybody is probably a little bit right and everybody is probably a little bit wrong and it all depends who did the study and how they did the study and you're dealing with the complexity of human behavior, which is different in different scenarios and different based on people's context, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that we're going to find one size fits all for this is really never going to happen. What we can do <coughs> is learn little tells and find little things that work and we can build on them and build on them and build them, and build them which is a far smarter way to do it. Um, so let's look at some of those things that we might start to do. Um, there you go, hint five on the don't side. If you found a simple answer, you probably haven't. So what can we maybe start to do? Well, changing the choices is um, all a bit nanny state, but the problem is it works. So um, you will have seen all over the world people seeking ban on things like supersized soft drinks, um, bans on junk food TV, uh, ads for children in children's shows, those sorts of things. There's a reason people call these bans. Now they cause this nanny state conflict um, a lot, but even if you got, which is why even if you got support for them, it's really hard to get them through. But the reason it works is because where of course they do start to get these things through, like California, they seem to lead the world in a lot of these things, somehow they get it through, uh, it actually works. And there's a quote from that story, five years after California started cracking down on junk food in school cafes, a new report shows high school, high school students, they consume fewer calories and less fat and sugar than others. In simple terms, going back to that statement before that, um, we are not that in control of our decisions. Our urges will um, dictate us more than us choosing what is right for ourselves. If we simply remove the option, then we are far more likely to make a good choice. Now, that's a fairly big blanket ban when you're talking about cafes and the like. But of course, this works in your everyday life too. If you don't buy the chocolate, the chocolate is not in the cupboard when you go to eat the chocolate. It's really simple. And we all know that too, right? As soon as the option is not available to us, we can't make it. So um, making the right, helping people make the right decision before the moment they make the decision, so that decision is not available at that point, is a really good way of um, helping do it. It's called, it's called choice editing, and, and we all know it, and it works. But as I say, it requires still some discipline down the line, and it doesn't really sit very well with the concept of pure freedom, right? And, and everyone has their own choice. Um, and probably a softer version of that that I really like is this, um, which is... Uh, not so much, they, they have removed the choice, but they put a bit of a, um, a soft, a, a carrot with it as well. So this is Sainsbury's going out there and realizing that if you go through their fridges, uh, this is say six years ago before they did this, if you went through the fridges, guess what? Full of endangered fish, which is a lot of fish these days, yeah? Or full of, full of fish that really should be being in the ocean making new fish if we want to keep eating this fish. So what they did is they did go, we're not going to stock those fish anymore. But of course, that's really hard when you're a supermarket and everyone goes, I love that fish. What do you mean I can't have that fish? So what they did is they also released this campaign called uh, Switched Fish, where they went through and um, 
send these ice cream style vans around with little, you can almost see them, they're little cones of fish and chips. And they said to people, what would you like? And people go, I'll have the tuna and chips or whatever. And you go, there you go. Um, no, thanks, that's delicious. And you go, yeah, but it's not tuna. What do you mean it's not tuna? Well, that's this fish, which is a lot like tuna, but it's a more sustainable alternative. So maybe, so we're switching our home brand products and maybe next time you buy fish, you could consider swapping that for that. So it's providing them a positive option, not just doing the choice editing, but also providing them a positive alternative and putting it in their hand to try it. So they go, okay, yeah, I can see that. Therefore, when I get that personal urge for I've got to eat tuna, um, I can make that and it's not, I haven't, I haven't lost something out of this so showing them there's a positive alternative which i think is a really nice little way to, to, to shift behavior change some behavior um and back again to my friend dan Arely. Arely. um he funny enough comes with the same um, conclusion if you read enough of his stuff you got to read it many places but i've kind of aggregated it for you he goes i make rules for myself i have to exercise at least three times a week and i specify what it means so he forces rules on himself I can only eat dessert on weekends and I created these rules with my cousin and we agreed we'll report to each other. So we added a layer of social responsibility. There's something incredibly powerful about both rules and the social mechanism that for me is working very well. So you can see he hasn't denied himself access to his, the, to knowing he is going to make bad decisions. He's going, I'm going to make them right. Because like, they're not all that bad. They're part of being a human, but I'm going to set some rules that offset those things, make me do it a little less make me offset some of those um, bad decisions with better decisions. So I'm going to balance my behavior a bit, but also the social piece again, the fashion piece. I'm going to be responsible um, to somebody else other than myself. And therefore, suddenly, I'm part of a group making this decision, not just trying to do it um, by myself. And so this idea that you can lead yourself. So, um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is this wonderful thing you may be fortunate enough to come up with over time, um, come up and um, have, may have come up within your feeds or whatever over time, is this concept of nudge theory. And it's a beautiful little idea where if you just sort of drag people towards um, the right decision, they will make it. It's, it's very interesting. We've done a lot of fundraising in the past. And if you ask someone for $10, you'll get $10. If you ask the same, say you, let's say you ask 100 people for $10 and let's say 10 people will say, yes, I'll give you money, 10 people will give you $10. If you ask 100 people for $30, 10 people will give you $30. They will literally give what they are asked and therefore leading people to what the behavior you want is a really nice way of doing it. Um, this, is a, this is where it all began with, some, with people trying to stop guys weighing on the floor. Isn't that a great place for a concept to begin? Um, and they found that they stuck these little um, fake fly stickers in the urinals and it made all the guys aim at the fly, think it was a real fly to make the fly fly away and 85% better aim, 85% less clean up. And you'll see if you are a male, um, you'll see occasionally you'll find little soccer goals and stuff now in urinals, try and get guys to aim right. So there you go. Um, in other applications um, done by a designer, where it shows you how much power it's sucking. Green um, goes to orange, goes to red. So, so you can see your appliances burning through energy. Interesting little bit of nudge that makes you go, ooh, maybe I need to think about that. Um, footsteps to the bin, real nice and simple. 46% less littering as soon as you do that. 70% more people choosing the stairs if you simply put lines to the stairs. So that they go, oh, okay, that's where I'm meant to go. 
Um, and same sort of thing, get people to stand on the correct side so they know. All these little things work really well. One of my favorites, how do you stop people? If you ever go and do a beach cleanup or a cleanup, you will find that you won't notice it otherwise, but you will now that I've told you, go and look at any park bench and it is surrounded by cigarette butts. Every park bench everywhere is surrounded by cigarette butts. How do you stop it? Well, here's an attempt by a um, European government council. Beautiful. Give me a reason that I might um, stick it in a bin. Uh, so that's a good one. You'll appreciate that as health practitioners. Designated smokers area, that says. Um, and, you know, what happens with bananas and that, if you ever watched War on Waste, you'll know, oh, you know, people want perfection. It's got to be the perfect bunch. I'll take the hand with five, la, 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 all the single ones get left. Suddenly you give me just a little nudge and boom, the single ones all go. So just giving people little nudges towards good behavior changes it a lot. Uh, what else might work? Well, making it fun. I'm going to show you two ads that ostensibly are to get people to eat healthier. And then let's have a look at which one works best. bit scary isn't it now I'll show you add two brought to you by a bunch of carrot farmers I can only see Lauren, Beth, and Kerry, but who votes for add one is more likely to get people to eat healthy? How about add two? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, suddenly I'm like, oh, I don't want to engage with that. And the other one's like, yeah, yeah, baby carrots, right? Make it fun. Push me towards the positive behavior instead of pushing me away from the negative. Um, what else might work? Make it rewarding. And reward doesn't mean money and all these things. It can just be simple. This is a beautiful couple of little bits of work. You've got um, just a bunch of screensavers done um, done in Nairobi. Um, sorry, done in um, sorry, done in America, but looking at and showing people how much energy they're using at their workstation, trying to reduce energy um, use in the office. And just this, where you just have your screensaver is essentially giving you positive and negative reactions. So, but it's in a fun way, yeah? Um, pull your socks up. Um, and this one by Volkswagen.
no. There you go. Lovely little idea that just shows you, um, you see people literally looking for rubbish to throw away. Um, so there's a few things in my work, but let's bring it all together in something you can actually remember. That's a lot of the stuff we explore to come up with things. And I'm going to give you one example of a behavior that has been very popular in less than recent years, and particularly government wants to do, and that's riding a bike. Yeah? So you've got this problem where obviously, like, <clears throat> if you put in more roads, you get more cars. And like Sydney's been at that point for quite some time, Melbourne too, if you ever try to get to the airport. Um, and even places like Adelaide used to have nothing, but it still, you know, creeps into all these places. Traffic becomes a, a bit of a big deal. So how do you be able to swap the car for a bike? Um, and, and looking at everything we've learned, you know, if you were to get four people together and they didn't, you know, they hadn't been through this present and you said to them, okay, um, person number one, how are we going to get more people to do it? They go, they go, I'm going to give you the rational thought, right? But I'm going to make it funny. And they go, we're going to run there. We're going to put these stencils all over the city. Yeah, this one runs on fat and saves you money. This one run, runs on money and makes you fat. And people are going to laugh, but they're going to think because it is actually a rational argument. You know, we're going to run that everywhere. And people are going to love it. And you go, okay, that's kind of cool, right? Um, and then the second person goes, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, the truth is I sort of already know that. My problem is I'm like 35 and I've not ridden a bike for like 20 of those years or something. And so that person goes, no, no, what we're going to do is we're going to get people on one side of like a big city park and all these people are working, walking from the, the, the suburbs to their city office. We're going to stop them, at, you know, the near side of the park. <clears throat> And we're going to go, look, this park's about 200 metres across. Why don't you grab a bike, ride it across, and there'll be someone on the other side of the park to tape it off you. And they're going to ride across the park and they're going to go, gee, that took like 30 seconds. It was kind of fun. And I feel confident. And the person on the other side is going to go, yeah, yeah, it's just like riding a bike ride. And, um, and then they're going to say, um, look, imagine if your whole commute was like that. Wouldn't that be cool? And they're going to go, you're right. I should think about riding a bike. And boom. Um, that's what we call product demonstration. Yeah? And you see it when someone stands there with a little bit of sausage and Woolworths and says, try the sausage, it's delicious. And you go, ooh, so it is, I think I'll buy some. Um, and then the third person goes, yeah, that's all fine and well, but let's be honest, I know how to ride a bike and I know it's good for me. My problem is no one else rides a bike and I feel a bit stupid, you know, as everyone laughs at me as I ride in and goes, hey, look at little greenie on their bicycle. And so you go, yeah, yeah, okay. So you're worried about being the only person riding a bike. So what we're going to do is we're going to get group rides together and we're going to go out at night and give everyone neon to put their wheels and your rides a pack. It's going to be fun and you're going to feel like you're part of the group and 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 like suddenly like you're actually part of so, you're, you're part of a social movement. You're going to go, mm, I'm part of a social movement. I'm there's no fear in being alone kind of thing, which is a big thing for humans. And 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 you go, yeah, yeah, that's what they go, that's what I want. And that's fashion and recommendation, of course. Um and then the fourth person goes, you're all dreaming. You know what's wrong? There's no bike lanes. So you put in bike lanes, I'm going to get squished and my head's going to get popped like a grape by some uh, the inner city lorry or garbage truck. I'm not doing it. So just put in the infrastructure and people will use it. And, and you get this question, you've got four different answers there, who's right and who's wrong? And the answer, of course, is everyone's kind of right, right? And that's that to us is a nice way of looking at this because you go on the up-down axis, you have me as an individual versus me and my role in society, we. On the other hand, you have internal, my perception of this behavior versus 
my genuine ability, the external factors that determine if I can do the behavior. So the top left, it's all about me and my perception. And so just giving me a reason to do it, a reward, and I don't mean like a monetary reward, just a, an emotional or a rational reward is a part of it. So bang. Then I go to the top right and I go, me, I need not only the feeling that this is a good thing to do, but I need to know how to do it. I need it demonstrated. And that's your product. That's your demonstration piece. So now I have what I need as a human on my own individual level. But let's go down to the bottom level. And you go, as part of a collective, my perception needs to be that I'm part of a social norm here. I'm not an outlier. I'm not a, a lone nut. There's a good video. Go look up Lone Nut. If that's, you should all write that down. Look up Lone Nut Dan Pink on YouTube. One of the best videos you'll ever see. Um, and then bottom right, I go, well, also uh, collectively, we need the infrastructure to allow people to do it. If I can't buy baby carrots, there's no point having the ad for baby carrots or whatever. If there's no bike lanes, it becomes hard. And you need a bit of all that. And of course, you can put everything to a quadrant. You go, there's your, there's your reason, um, there's your demonstration, there's your fashion and recommendation, and there's your infrastructure. And that works pretty well. And I could end the talk there, but I'm going to give you a small twist, which is, I reckon that the top half of this, that one half of this is more important than the other half. And I'll show you why. So here's a problem, garbage, waste. Sorry, that, that logo came in too quick. I'll try that again. There you go. You see this everywhere. Yeah? Now, in this particular case, there's probably not a lot to salvage there other than perhaps the hat. But in a lot of cases, what you're starting to see is stuff put on the side of the road that does have value. And we looked at this about a decade ago. And when you know what, if you could create an easy way for people to redistribute this stuff among themselves, maybe they wouldn't do this, but they're not going to bother. This is before Gumtree and all that, but even that, it's a bit too much effort and la la la. la. What if you could just roll out all your stuff um, on a particular day of the year and like um, people could walk around and buy and sell stuff? And, and we've already got that mechanism, right? It's called garage sale. But what if the problem with the garage sellers are put in all that effort? And do people really come? I don't know. Maybe nobody's walking around that day. Or I go for a walk and I look at it. I've got to drive 10 minutes to see one and there's nothing there. Whereas if everyone has one on one day, well, the chances are that there's going to be people walking around because they can look at 20 in a, in a day and therefore I'll probably sell something. So the motivation on both sides comes up. So we looked at this and um, went, okay, let's get people to put their sales on a website, on a map, and then I can go through a map and I can see what's for sale and, and, and I can drill into a sale where and when it is, what's for sale. And therefore, suddenly we've got, a, uh, as someone once said, getting people offline, using, using online to get people offline. Um, and the sorts of things that go up for sale are insane. You could buy a Ouija board. You can have yourself a Stormtrooper outfit, um, all sorts. And then you start to see, we, you know, you get famous and some famous people involved, like Angus Stone. Um, and then you go and photograph what real people do and show people how others are doing it. Um, and you find that the young kids get into it. There's stuff for them and there's stuff for the old kids. And, and it works pretty well. And then when you go back to our theory of change kind of thing, you realize that, that realistically, the way this works is, 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 is if you look at your bike stuff again, it's all there, right? But when it comes to garage sale trail, it's a little different because the top half's not there. There's no bit where we tell you why you should go and sell your stuff or buy stuff because you don't need to know that. There's no bit where I show you how to do it because you know how to have a garage sale. Everyone knows that. 
What we do instead is spend a lot of time saying, doing the equivalent of a neon bike ride. Look, everyone else is doing it. All the cool kids are doing it. You should do it too. And then we set up the digital infrastructure, bottom right, to make it easy for you to do it. And there's my um, punchline for you, is that all four quadrants should be looked at. But if you can find an existing behavior that already solves the problem that you're trying to solve, and you can make it fashionable and fun, and you can create a little bit of infrastructure, whatever that be, just a list someone puts in their fridge or a website or a bike lane or whatever it is, that makes it more possible to do it. So it's easier for everyone to do it and everyone sees everyone else doing it. Then you bring in the power of social connection to it and suddenly whooshka, the tide gates, uh, the tide gates open, uh, the floodgates open, not the tide gates, and um, people start doing it. And you don't have to spend all that time building this rational thought and showing me how. You just got to make sure you're, that's how movements are built, basically. Once everyone else is doing it, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm doing it because everyone else is doing it. And that's the fastest way to start change behavior so if you want to put that in a sentence simplify it demonstrate it involve people repeat reward make it fun and keep doing that so if you put that into um uh into 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 the hint handbook on the left you've got your your five reasons five things that probably don't work and on the right you've got um four things that probably do work with the final hint that maybe just bringing them all together is a good way to go and, 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 and the way to start to do that. So thank you for that. I'll show you those things in case you want to go check us out or send an email or any of that. And then I will pass on to Lauren. So thank you for listening. Thanks, Ben. That was fascinating and challenging at the same time. Um, there is a lot there. And I think the challenge part of that is how do we actually integrate that into practice and what we actually do each and every day when we're working with athletes. And that's Carrie and I's job to look at that now. So I'm going to share my screen. And... All right, we are going to have a look at the types of tools that we might use with adolescents when we are doing, um, and I guess in all types of environments. So whether that's one-on-one -on -one consulting, whether that's um, in a team environment. Um, so I've, well, we've chosen a few resources and, and ways that we might actually ad educate adolescents and potentially parents if they're involved as well. When we're looking at, um, I guess, sports nutrition concepts or ways that we want to improve performance through nutrition or hydration. So we might use something like fact sheets or handouts. And I've got some examples here of fact sheets. So you can see that this one came, um, was created in 1998. So uh, a little bit of age in this one, but our newest version I've also got up here. So when we look at these, uh, I guess my comment on that would be, are these actually even aimed at an adolescent or are these actually aimed at adults or maybe the parents of those adolescents? And do we need to be using different education tools when it comes to uh, giving over that information? So when we are, when we may have an adolescent sitting in front of us, maybe in terms of the sports nutrition consult, 
what are we actually, how are we distributing that information to them? Are we talking at them? Are we writing goals on a piece of paper? Are we handing over fact sheets such as this? How are we actually going to help that adolescent and potentially the parent that might be in the room to actually make positive changes or encourage them to do so? So we are going to present a whole bunch of uh, questions, maybe not so much the answers to these. So if you do have suggestions uh, of ways that you have used in your practice or um, things that have probably come up as you've listened to Ben or Kerry and I speak, then please feel free to pop it in the chat. Um, and we will, um, as we go over the next 20 minutes or so, we will uh, refer back to those points as well. What other sort of education tools would we use? Well, we might use PowerPoint or some sort of visual tool, whether that's Prezi or um, a few of the other tools that might be available. And again, when we're putting together those um, slides, uh, a lot of times we are probably on the text heavy side. Um, we, there may be some visuals on the actual screen, um, but I guess Ben's presentation was probably a good example where there was lots of pictures and very few words. Um, and that tends to be uh, uh, more effective when it comes to adolescents and adults, I'd say, and certainly using things like uh, video content. Uh, can be really helpful as well. So if anyone's got some good tips on video content that would help to drive our uh, message to our population, that would be very helpful for all of us, I would say. So 10, when we do a presentation, they tend to be, I guess, 30 to 60 minutes in duration. They might include questions at the end. Um, and for most of us who have done plenty of these uh, presentations to adolescents, we'll know that uh, a lot of times we get to the questions at the end and uh, we probably get very few questions if it's an adolescent only population. Um, and usually we have to really encourage the discussion to happen, particularly if it's a very large group. And that probably comes back to what Ben was saying around being in that peer group and that peers are very influential, particularly to the adolescent group. So putting your hand up and actually asking a question uh, sometimes can be very challenging for that adolescent. Sometimes we would also give a written handout if it was um, a presentation. And again, it might be the SDA um, handouts that we might use or we may have uh, put together our own. But oftentimes, again, they would be uh, quite text heavy. Although we are now starting to use more infographics and these are some infographics that I've pulled from um, our very clever friends at YLM and also at the AIS who have put together the infographics. And these two happen to be on hydration, which might be something that we're talking to adolescents about. But if we have a look at them, again, visually, there's a lot of text on them and the language that's used and the type of information on there is probably not uh, directed at the adolescent uh, population. It's probably more directed at adults um, or older athletes. So do we need to have resources that we put together that are adolescent specific so that we are actually uh, helping that particular population or are we expecting that these sort of resources are given to the parent who may be 
able to potentially influence um, some of the behaviours and certainly the resources that might be at home and available. So if we're talking about hydration, that might be having um, water bottles available, uh, maybe having sports drink um, and encouraging its use at appropriate times in certain training sessions or in competition, those sorts of things. So um, anything else you want to say on the infographics, Kerry? I was just thinking, Lauren, is if you were looking at it now and you're reflecting on these and looking at what Ben actually said, mm. what would be your changes that you would actually look at implementing for yourself at the moment and reflecting on your own practice of what you do? Um, I'm guilty of all of the things that I just said, actually. So I am guilty of um, uh, probably having too much information on slides. I'm definitely guilty of having a handout, feeling that need to have a handout, because if I don't give them anything, what am I actually doing? Although if anyone's actually um, given many handouts at adolescent talk, you'll know that most of them are left in the room or uh, never see the light of day. They're stuffed in the bottom of a bag. I'm very sure parents never never see them and they're certainly never read so you do wonder why you bother. Um, so I, I do think there needs to be a significant change in practice uh, and more thought put into how what would actually be effective for an adolescent and how to actually give that information. So if we talk about hydration because that's sitting in front of us then I think it needs to be much more picture based but also probably drawing on the peer group. So whether we have an individual athlete or a team sport athlete, actually drawing on what peers would be doing and uh, trying to create a situation where all of the group are actually doing the behaviour or have an opportunity to do the behaviour that we might be looking at. So is the environment supportive for those athletes to actually be having drinks? Do they get opportunity to have drinks during training? Um, what does it look like in terms of their particular sport, uh, in terms of having drinks during the game, halftime, whatever that might look like, um, depending on the sport that we're looking at? But yeah. I think those infographics need to be changed so that they are adolescent um, specific as opposed to being uh, adult ones. Yeah. And what about with presentations? I, I would see a scene for sometimes being more asking questions of adolescents in those things, giving them opportunities to have input into the conversation. So whether you're using things like um, Kahoot or anything like that to sort of give them that opportunity to, to put some input in there or even to do some scenario type of um, things to set them up to go, you know, to do a little bit of role play or things like that to participate in that way where they're actually demonstrating and talking to each other and using their own skills to try and change some of those things. So almost a, how could you do this? What examples have you used and things like that? So a much more interactive version of a, um, of a presentation. Sure. And how do we make it fun? So how do we, you know, use YouTube clips or something on TikTok or whatever it is so that we're actually using a visual and something that's a bit more fun or maybe the, 
the uh, goal is actually for the athletes or the adolescent group to actually find some of that content themselves. Like what can they find on the topic that is actually educational? Um, so, yeah, I think we do need to be more creative in that area and possibly um, uh, more collaborative or more um, share more of those resources, have somewhere that we can actually share something that might um, work really well in a particular adolescent population. So do we need to have, you know, maybe even somewhere on the SDA website or um, uh, um, share it on Google um, groups where there might be resources that could be really helpful in that particular population? Yeah, or so even things like the follow-up to a team, like is it the handout or is it the like letting it, like having messages that you can send as reminders on a WhatsApp group or some form of communication that a team or a group might already have that mm. you can actually access. So setting up those forms of communication before the presentation might be an easy way then to be able to get them to, to join the group and to be able to get that continuous stuff without you having to be recreating things all the time because that sure. takes a lot of time. It does, yes. <laughs> So there are some more practical um, tools that we might use. So things like cooking classes and shopping tours and, and practical life activities. And um, we can probably also put in there the sports performance activities. So maybe doing something like a fluid balance study where we have those opportunities to use those types of tools, that certainly lends itself to what Ben was saying in terms of it actually involving the uh, peer group that you actually uh uh, they're participating in the behaviour rather than telling them to change the behaviour. You're actually showing them how to do it. You're actually um, giving them an opportunity to actually do it themselves. So, uh, but those sort of tools are not always available. So where you might work at an institute with um, a program, you may have an opportunity to do things like this, but where you have more individual athletes that you might be seeing in private practice, these types of activities are sometimes not available to us. And I guess over the COVID time as well, we probably all found that we're less um, able to do some of these activities. Hopefully that's going to change over the coming months as we open up a bit more. Um, but a lot of these activities have been cut uh, just simply due to access and um, safety, I guess. So using these tools where we can, but also um, if we're doing education, for um, actually having um, products that we can actually use. So whether that's actually bringing in um, supermarket products or sports nutrition products so that they can actually try them, so that they can actually see them, have a look at the packages, being able to have a look at what they are. And rather than just telling them that uh, there's 30 grams of protein in that particular recovery food, getting them to actually look at it and discover that for themselves and work out what why they would use that particular recovery product uh, and what uh, nutrition goals it might achieve for them might work quite well as well. Yeah, and I think we've probably seen some really great examples about how people have done that in short snippets as well. So mm -hmm. keeping the time frame down that you might do a whole lot of little like online type of presentations like that that could be done so that you could then be people could go to it when they wanted to, they could revisit that type of experience, but in a short time frame, so that you're educating in snippets rather than and nudging, rather than doing things, you know, in a big, long presentation. So that let's take into account how long that time span they're gonna watch it for, get it done, get it out there and um, let them go back to it if they want to. 
And I think that's happening in um, some of the programs, um, sort of the national programs and looking at some of the pathways um, activities that I know are happening in, a, in multiple sports where they're actually looking at education modules and actually coming up with, um, I guess, shorter videos that then have some content to go along with it. So again, trying to find uh, your target audience and where they're going to be. So if we're looking at adolescents, they're much more likely to be on uh, YouTube, TikTok, those sort of places than they are on Facebook, for example. So I guess using the mediums that they're more likely to use because they're more likely to then respond to that information. But as you said, keeping it short and sort of fun and more interactive where possible. And I wonder whether it's um, it's not the, they want to hear it from people like uh, you and I, but whether they're wanting to hear it from their superhero player who can do that thing or even someone who can they, they, they'll see as closer to their own age about yes. how they can do things. So it's a peer type of based message or a sport related message rather than just being um, the sports dietitian. I have knowledge and here I'm going to tell you how to do it. Yes, absolutely. So we might also have uh, certain tools that we would use in terms of feedback or giving learning, and that might be apps or some sort of uh, wearable technology. So things like Meal Logger and Easy Diet, Diabry, Libro, or we may simply just get an athlete, adolescent athlete to take photos of what they're eating so that we can give folk feedback. Um, there might be th certain um, teams that have uh, Whoops or Apple Watches that they're using for actual data collection. And, and we might all have uh, reservations about adolescents using these technologies and maybe what information that they might actually interpret off of them. But the reality is that this technology is available to athletes. And so uh, rather than educating to not use it or that you shouldn't be using it, maybe we need to be looking more so um, at how we can have appropriate technology that they can use or ways in which they can interpret that data which is actually useful for them if they've already got the tech just telling them not to use tech they already have isn't going to work that's getting further away from actually involving them in uh, the education that we might and, and the behavior change um, that we might actually be wanting for them yeah so I, I think probably as we're getting a bit short in time and things like that, and we've got, you know, we've gone to those things like the communication type of tools, and we've probably mentioned those in terms of using team app and things like that, which I think can be a great way to, to probably promote some of those, those things that you can promote that general message out there. You've just got to be able to communicate then um, with the person who is in charge of what goes on to those team apps and, and to be able to be an administrator on there and work out what's the appropriate time frame when they're going to be looking at it to try and get that information to them. As you've said, Lauren, it's, it's uh, I don't know of any athlete that ever reads an email that I send them. Um, it really has to be a text message that I, I put the email there and then go, I've sent you an email. Can you please go and um, yes. can you please read the emails? That, that would be my next thing. I, I do use WhatsApp quite a bit and I'll put links into things in WhatsApp, but they've got to be using that and they've got to see that as the primary form of communication. Um, 
Yeah. I think the yeah. challenge there, though, is that works really well for team sport and sort of institutes-based um, uh, sports. Where that's, I find that challenging is in private practice. So where you have an individual athlete. Um, so typically we would use email in terms of our communication then, but maybe that change in practice needs to be that we actually ask the adolescent how they would like to be communicated to rather than just assuming that email is the way that we should be communicating maybe it needs to be um, how can I get that information to you yeah definitely so I suppose when you look at it in terms of the case study that we've been looking at through all of this time um, what type of you know what things do you think would be some of the best things to talk about you know with this type of person and this is exactly the, the case study example that Sharon um, and Ben presented on a, a few sessions ago. Um, and this is an individual athlete. It is someone that is um, presenting in, um, I guess, private practice, essentially. So that individual consult. So typically, uh, the communication tools and the education tools that I would have used is I would have been sitting um, in the room with the athlete. I would have been asking lots of questions. I would be trying to... Um, um, I guess build that rapport with Sarah and her mum, but most of the conversation would be with Sarah, particularly because she is a 15-year-old. And um, in this particular example, she was a very good communicator. So she's doing a lot of the talking, then it would make sense that we're doing a lot of the talking and conversing with her. But um, definitely my pro, um, practice, I suppose, would have been to email resources to mum and Sarah. Typically, I would actually ask for Sarah's email and the mum's email. So it's actually going to both. But there's something in itself that potentially could be changed. Uh, but oftentimes what I would be emailing to them would be something that it is very text heavy and more of a fact sheet. So maybe that's where we need to have some of those resources that are more uh, visual or maybe links to uh, appropriate video content that may actually uh, be a bit more interesting and fun to actually uh, look at and, and learn from. Um, but I guess it would depend on, uh, it, it does all come down to how much time is in that consult and what uh, particular goals or areas that we're trying to look at. So as, as Sharon said, in this example, every time we ask a question, a lot more information comes out. And so that can also be the challenge in private practice where you have a limited amount of time. So you do tend to do a lot of the talking during the consult and a lot of the emailing after the consult. Yeah, and I, and I think it's really important to to build that in and to build that that linking and understanding with people, but to almost have a little bank of resources that are very readily adaptable that you can then individualise for that person to make it seem like it's their thing all the time that you're trying to change. You're not trying to change a group. You're trying to change. You're trying to help them and their issues and get them to identify some of the really key things to work on quickly and then get those changes going later on. Yeah, absolutely. And then it might be, um, as Ben was saying, looking at how others are doing it. So actually talking to them about um, how do others in your team or in your sport actually manage these sort of things? Or are there um, your superhero, um, athlete superhero in your particular sport? Um, do we have images of them doing it? Or how do can we actually show them that others are actually doing it? And then I guess it also comes down to how can we make it easy for them to actually make those changes to do that um, particular sports nutrition principle uh, easier. 
So uh, thinking about that as well, how do we break down the barriers, which is something that we would all do, but I think it's uh, really being specific to the adolescent. So why is that adolescent not able to do those behaviours um, because their peers are not doing it or whatever the case may be and making sure that we're addressing those particular concerns. All right. Well, in the interest of time, we have given you um, a lot of uh, things to ponder and a lot of challenges to take away with you. Um, but I guess I uh, would implore all of you to really think about the way that we talk to adolescents and their parents and how we can actually um, uh, be better in terms of helping them to improve their practice around sports nutrition. As always, I think we've um, run a little bit over time and so question time is limited. If anyone does have any questions for our presenters, uh, please do feel free to send them through. We'll continue, we can answer them offline. Um, thank you to Ben, Kerry and Lauren. I know that I'll be going back and watching this presentation when it's uploaded to Moodle, which will be done shortly. I think there was a lot in there that um, I think we'll reflect upon as we go to, to move towards behaviour change in our adolescent group. Just a reminder to all our participants, a short survey will appear on your screen when this webinar is finished. Please take the time to complete that. And also you can log this for 10 CDP points as well. So thank you for everyone. And we look forward to catching you for the last in our series uh, in three weeks time. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you.